America's bedrock principle of religious freedom is being severely tested by the pandemic. Singing has been banned at all church services in California. We need to bend the curve. I could feel something inside of me like we got to take a stand. Christian singer and activist Sean Foyt leading what's called Let Us Worship. This guy is probably responsible for hundreds of deaths. We thank you, Lord, that there is another story that the media isn't telling. It is one of hope. There's a pandemic. There's a plague. Here's a move of God. It's going to change America. The whole thing is fear, man. It's fear. It's intimidation. Courage is taught when you see it. You can't teach it as principles. You have to see it modeled. Christians are rising up. I'm telling you guys. Light overcomes darkness every day. This is not political. This is biblical. Super Spreader. Rated PG-13. In theaters September 29th. Alrighty, uh, welcome, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight we'll be discussing Sean Foyt and practicing some discernment as to whether he is a hero or a villain in the church. Now, uh, part of the titling of this has to do with uh, the fact that last year we had a hero and villain category for uh, our annual EVA Awards, which is like a little award show that we do. And Villain of the Church was a clear winner in Francis Collins for 2021. And so we're invoking that same type of language because we're not necessarily asking the question of whether he is or isn't a false teacher. But that question is very, in some ways, synonymous with whether someone is a hero or a villain of the faith. For instance, when we talk about Tim Keller, we just clear, you know, I just clearly laid out that he's a villain in the church. It doesn't matter how many times he's adequately preached the gospel or presented the gospel accurately. He has added so much to the church, he uh, to the gospel even, and his influence is highly negative. So sometimes it's you, you can look at it as whether someone is or isn't a false teacher. Other times you can look at it as whether someone is or is not a net positive to the church. And I guess we're going to be asking that question about Sean Foyt tonight, who's definitely one of the biggest activists in evangelicalism and Christianity in general in the United States. So he, he's a very enigmatic figure, I think. He's a very curious figure. And the what makes this an important thing to be discerning about is the fact that Sean Foyt says a lot of what we agree with. He is an activist in the church. He is an activist for the church and specifically in a time when the church needed much of the message he was preaching. So that is why we want to talk about this, because there's a lot more to his background than his Let Us Worship campaign. Even the Let Us Worship campaign that he did, the rallies that he was doing, they have some questionable uh, practices in there as well. So there's a lot of questions regarding Sean Foyt that we wanted to discuss tonight. And the two of us are here tonight because we both independently sought to do some sort of material on Sean Foyt, kind of doing a lot of research on Sean Foyt uh, independently of each other. And then we decided to merge our efforts together. I initially had reached out to Sean Foyt to do an interview 
And believe me, if you think that I would have softballed the interview because, you know, he's some major celebrity that can get articles written about him by Christian Post or uh, any other site regularly appears on Fox News. If you think I would have soft peddled these questions, I would absolutely have not because, you know, I'm on the record saying that Bill Johnson's a false teacher. But evidently, Sean Foyt's publicist said that he wasn't doing interviews right now when I asked, which was a couple months ago. So it didn't look like uh, they maybe they did their background check and said, we're not doing evangelical dark. Screw web because, yeah, screw you. Uh, maybe they said that to me, but um, they weren't doing interviews. And it was about the super spreader movie because I was and that's how we opened up this live stream tonight was with the trailer for that movie. And. Again, he was doing a message in 2020 and 2021 that your pastor more likely than not, should have also been doing in terms of worshiping unafraid of the government and unafraid of lockdowns and stuff like that. So uh, we'd like to welcome everyone to the live stream because we noticed an uptick in uh, viewers catching up. And in that case, uh, live chat is good, but we're going to be staying on topic for the most part tonight. Uh, because I want to make this sort of evergreen content for people searching online about Sean Foyt. So I want to keep this rather uh, a specific in topic tonight. So, but otherwise live chat is very much encouraged. And before we dive in, I also want to say that if you want to support uh, evangelical dark web, uh, you can do so at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join uh this is sort of our patreon like system because we don't use patreon because patreon censors so we don't use them youtube censors patreon censors but they can't censor our own website so that's why we prefer to use our own website um so with that said uh tell me about why you wanted to write about uh sean foyt because i you know, because you started this independently of me. I started because of the super spreader movie that was coming out. You started and came out last week, uh, to be more specific. You started for what reason? Uh, big thing is I kind of because I like uh, Elijah Schaefer. So Elijah Schaefer is how I kind of began the article. So it was originally supposed to be about just their interview. And then as it goes deeper, it was it became more about Foyt and his uh I guess all his background, uh, a very comprehensive review of both his ministries and his act, his activities. And I mean, and, and the way I approach the article is more or less me being exposed to Sean Foyt for the first time, because I really never heard of him. Like I know who Bethel is and I'm familiar with those with, you know, if you're associated with Bethel, that should be a giant red flag going up. But at the same time, you know, if you were to get, if you were to watch that Elijah Schaefer interview with Sean Foy, I mean, maybe if you're like a learned Christian, got some years under your belt, you know, then his interview was very clean. Like he plays a very good hand. If So there is a lot of questions. So even if there is a red flag like that, you see him on an interview, he seems, sounds very orthodox. He, again, he's saying the things you wish your pastor would say. So there's a lot of a lot to unpack there as far as researching who he is and whether or not, you know, just because someone plays a good hand on an interview, just because they say a lot of the stuff you want to 
want them to say, does that indicate that you should be following them or should you not? And the article itself is kind of like a walkthrough of the research that I put into uh, research or the research I put into Sean Foyt. So you start off with your initial exposure, your first impression, and then you start looking into the background and going from there. Right. And again, since I wanted to initially interview him, I did my own sort of, uh, what's the term that the Iowa newspaper Des Moines register put it to like totally sack this one dude and cancel him was like a routine background check. I think I was just doing my version of a routine background check and it's like, okay, this guy is associated with Bethel Redding. He is associated with Bethel Redding and you know, that's just one of the major concerns. You do a cursory search of him on YouTube. He's all, he's doing videos with Todd white. Uh, and then obviously we can look at the credits of the super spreader movie. And that's a shady cast list as well. Kind of interesting that Josh Hawley is a prominent part of the movie, but so is Bill Johnson. So is Shay on, I think it's how you pronounce that Shay on. So and, he, he in particular was a part of a lawsuit right. against California. I believe that's why he's like prominent in the movie. Okay. Um, yes. I do recall this story. He won the law. He won his lawsuit about singing in church. I believe that went to the Supreme court. If I recall. Uh, so that might, that, that would explain that, but Shay on is completely a part of the new apostolic reformation, which is an, yeah. which is a movement all about, uh, erecting new Pope or not new popes, new apostles, so that uh, we can reinstitute the apostolic age of Christianity. So it, it's very much uh, fetishizing miracles as it relates to works and missions. And you, you do see that in Sean Foyt. Now, there are certain things in certain um, standards that we have for discernment in evangelical dark web. And I try to be as transparent about these these uh, metrics that we use in saying that someone's a false teacher. And one of the rules is that associations alone do not constitute someone being a false teacher. That's one of the rules. Now, he would have a major red flag in being associated with Bethel Reading Church. And there is a bit of a difference between association and yoking. And I think we talked about that tangentially in the last live stream. And, and that certainly is a factor in this equation. Like Chris Volantin, Volantin or whatever, the basically the prophecy minister of Bethel Redding Church is yoked to Bethel Redding. He's not just associated. He's not just, uh, you know, John Piper being associated with Louis Giglio. Uh, via the Passion Conference. This is far more profound a relationship. And I would also say that the relationship between Tr Sean Foyt and Bethel Re Redding is more profound and than just a mere conference sharing attendance. So that's the first thing that really pops up. You look into his discography, it doesn't look like that Bethel Music has produced all of his uh, albums. They haven't produced all of them, but they have produced some. But I, yeah, again, I think he's, he he began, I guess, as one of their worship leaders. So that's kind of how he 
got his, uh, I guess, start in, I guess, published music, so to speak. Because a lot of his earlier stuff is Bethel. And, you know, I did a review of his music just because uh, I could. And, and we're going to talk about that. Well, we can talk about the music later, but I do want to finish up the note about the metrics that we use. So the first one I, I wanted to be clear about is false associations do not or bad associations do not make someone a false teacher alone. And that the, the emphasis is alone. It is not conclusive enough to make that label. Now, yoking is a little bit different, but the association alone is not enough. The second metric is that generally speaking, and I don't know if there's a single example that's really counter to this, false teachers get worse over time. Christians generally get better over time because of sanctification. False teachers are not undergoing sanctification, so they will be revealed as time persists. And we see this in Deuteronomy, uh, certainly the law in Deuteronomy that talks about uh, if someone begins to prophesy and even if their prophecies come true but then says let us serve another god you're, you're basically to anathematize them and even stone them i think um so that's one of the standards is that there's a bait and switch component to false teaching that they're going to bait you in with good teaching and then introduce a false teaching afterwards it's a bait and switch Sean Foyt, I actually see the opposite trajectory. I don't see him getting worse over time. I see him actually getting better over time because of how bad his starting position was. His starting position was Bethel Reading Church with Bill under Bill Johnson, who is an extremely obvious false teacher in the United States. And the influence of Bethel Church is extremely prevalent and negative in the United States. So that's just two things that we need to understand as we get into the meat of this. So where do you, how about we talk? So you talked about his interview with uh, Elijah, Elijah Schaefer, former Blaze TV host. And there's also, he does a lot of interviews with Tucker Carlson and uh, Charlie Kirk at some conference it's just funny seeing Charlie Kirk talk about um, just his positions on COVID because I'm pretty sure he's changed his positions a lot, especially on the jabs. You can see like literal tweets of him just changing his uh, complete position on that. So, but yeah, if, if I were Sean Ford, I would have called him out on that, but. I mean, he's also well, shifted into, let me be, let me take on the culture war about like, you know, several years too late after stale economic mess. Right. But, but the thing then, about Sean Foyt is he is fighting the culture war and I think he's doing it rather well. And he's, he's, a he has amassed himself a large name recognition, not just because he's some other fruit loop from Bethel, but because he's actually taking a stand that many people wish their own pastors would take. And this has been an, an ongoing frustration within our little woods of evangelicalism is like, why aren't the ro theologically robust teachers taking stronger stands against branch covidianism as we've called it for the last two years, plus going on three years, you know, we called this whole, you know, panic and fear was basically a new religion that was uh, thrust upon society. And Sean, you know, where were the Christian leaders of robust theology saying, no, this is 
you are trying to say that Caesar is head of the church when he is not. The church, the church has the authority to conduct its worship. The government does not have the authority to regulate its worship. Where were the, you know, the people of robust theology on, in this response? And we did see last month with the release of the Frankfurt Declaration, which was not exclusively reformed or non-reformed. It was actually pretty theologically mixed, but a very theologically sound group of Christian leaders came together to draft that statement. I would encourage everyone to sign that statement. But Sean Foyt represents the other category, and that is a lot of hyper charismatics were actually quick to fight the lockdowns. And that is why Sean Foyt is famous. It's not necessarily because of his music career. It's because he wanted to fight the lockdowns and he had a righteous cause that spurred him to the top. It's it thrusted him to the top. It thrusted him into, you know, a big Eva in a sense, because there are multiple little lanes in big Eva. You have your Hillsong lane of big Eva. You have your, uh, maybe just hyper charismatic and not necessarily Hillsong lane. You have your Southern Baptist lane. You have your reformed Presbyterian lane. You have a lot of lanes in big Eva on your way to the top. And, Sean Foyt certainly got to the top in your generic Christian celebrity lane in the United States. And he was probably able to do that with by transitioning a new audience without necessarily foregoing his old audience. So I, I think I that's mean, a very good just... point. Because someone like me, someone who is very opposed to lockdowns, would be more likely to follow Sean Foyt. But that therein lies the danger of following someone based off one unifying issue, wedge issue that you really agree with them on and then not looking at the rest of their belief system, belief system and comparing how it ranks with orthodoxy in uh, doctrine. So he, that would be consistent across all social issues. He litmus, litmus test very well. He's, you know, against the homo agenda. He's, you know, he's leading uh, protest against Disney. Uh, he's against the pronoun game. So, I mean, he's been active on other social issues as well that a lot of conservatives and evangelicals are supposed to care about and wish that their pastors and you know preachers would talk about and condemn. He's even going against like life coach pastors. So, I mean, he, he would test very well on a lot of social issues and you know, you can't just say, oh, you pass all the litmus test. Therefore, you get you get a pass. Right. So I do want to get into some of his material that was of concern. And the first one is his emphasis on the number two, two, two. Can you explain that really quickly for uh, just complete noobs in the audience that don't understand what divination and anything like that is? So I guess one of the new agey practices that, that exists is basically called numerology. Now there's like biblical numerology, which might be the significance of 666 or sevens, uh, those types of things, would, or even just the number three, which is more of a rhetorical, I guess, numerology, numerological significance than necessarily a, a uh, I guess, divinity, I guess, or a divine one, like three would be a repetition. Um, but 
with new age, like different numbers have different meanings. So two, the significance of two would be that of like harmony, unity, um, pull it up, uh, unity, harmony, and, and divine blessing. So a lot of the things that and th you can go to like various uh, new agey type sites to kind of look at what the other numbers would mean. Uh, I used, uh, I used, oh, one of the sources I used that talked about Sean Foy talked about that. And then I confirmed it through like a website called Allure, which is like one of them women's thing that has like a cosmeto, uh, why did I say cosmetology? A, uh, astrology. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of like horoscope astrology, this is the type of lane that he's going in and the way he does kind of apply uh two, 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 it would fall under that banner of, it's not just like, he'll try to, in the clip we're going to show, he's going to uh, cite Isaiah 22, 22 as, but it goes beyond using the numbers two as a, like a life verse. Uh, so it's not, I mean, this is like, a, the, his entire ministry, you know, planned events for two, 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 two. And I think that's one of the stories that we're going to look at, but you can, this shows up very quickly on a cursory search for, of, uh, uh, Sean Foyt's material. And certainly in terms of his own beliefs, not just the beliefs that he would have been instilled with via Bethel Redding. I think this is more unique to him. I could be wrong. About how well, I mean, I imagine much of a, does a lot of new agey practices. So but, this one probably was adapted at the or adopted at that time, right? And but, that's probably the one that's really stuck. Yes, this the sticking power of this belief system on Sean Foyt is a persistent danger uh, as it relates to his ministry. So I guess just to cite scripture, it would be Deuteronomy eighteen ten, which would I guess be the, the Mosaic law, which would condemn. Uh, interpretation of omens and use of divinations. Um, and again, just the uh, use of numbers and versing, the versification of the Bible is a man's invention, not necessarily God's invention. Right. So uh, I'm going to play, we're going to play a couple clips from this sermon. It's called Worship as Our Weapon. It was posted on YouTube in July. I do not think this, this sermon I was delivered in it was not delivered when this was posted is kind of the point that I want to make. Uh, but don't forget to like the live stream or video if you are watching later on to really help with those magical YouTube algorithms. I mean, we've done cornfields in Pennsylvania. And we've done downtown Portland, Oregon in the middle of a 100-day riot. We've brought worship everywhere. And I feel like the Lord has given us a perspective. And this is a big part of what we want to release tonight. Now, when we were initially planning, uh, we knew that we had this thing in Myrtle Beach and, I, and, and, and Jay and I were, were praying. We're like, man, we got the whole band there. We got everybody around. We, we should really do something crazy. Like where is a crazy church with a bunch of wild people that we could gather and do a prophetic night? And you know, the first you know, 222 night that we did was in Pasadena, California on a Tuesday of February 22nd, 22222. And for me, it was significant because I've carried this word of Isaiah 2222 
which, uh, which talks about, I will lay on him the key of David. You know, that what he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It's a prophetic verse about Jesus being the one that can open the door, and also about worship, which if you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus then gave us the keys, right? To not just be a Christian club and do nice Southern church, but to open things and shut things in the spirit. How many know things need to be open and shut over America today? All right, so th that is clip number one, and you see that he inserts the numerology for a prophetic purpose was kind of what caught my eye. He's talking about having a prophetic night, and the way that he wants to invoke a prophetic night is this numerology, the two, the emphasis on 222. Is that something... No. Now, for any anyone in that audience, they're probably not going to understand what he's even talking about, or or not necessarily what he's talking about. Not going to understand the connotations associated with the the two 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 numerology. They're just going to hear him say Isaiah twenty two twenty two, and it's very subtle. It was very quick. I remember listening to it until he goes two 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 two, and then says that Tuesday is part of the numerology, which I thought was kind of uh, that was pretty dumb along the lines of Mike Todd saying that dry ice was steam. Like it, I thought that that part was maybe on that level, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe that's, it's not as bad as that. I mean, I guess it's more alliteration, but oddly enough, he would do like a two, two, two thing in September. So last month he would do it, which I think is, is, um, well, very odd given that there's nothing, there was no twos in the dates other than like 2022. So is weird. Like that's the biggest flaw. I see that's really inserted into a lot of his teaching is that he, he does insert the two, two, two numerology into his, his, uh, I guess sermonizing. Cause this is for all intents and purposes, a sermon. And he does quote the verse accurately, which is unsurprisingly. Um, and I believe he would be quoting NIV. So even though he is more or less uh, a product of Bethel, he generally will rely on the NIV or the NASB, not the Passion Translation. Uh, yes, let's actually talk about the Bible translations that he uses. Now, you say that he he uses a, he's a big proponent of the Passion Translation. I would say he is not. Bethel is, but Bethel is, but he's like not. In his sermons, he generally would use the NIV and. He did use the NASB in, in one of them, and but he you primarily can, uses NIV. And I'm not saying this is an automatic, but there are some certain Bible translations that false teachers rely on, most notably the message. If you're, you know, for instance, if your pastor is preaching about sex and using the message to preach the, the sermon on sex, and I'm, I'm using a specific example. I think it's uh, Levi Lusco who I'm referencing. Uh, yikes. That's a false teacher there. Because if you're serious about that topic, you would not be using Eugene Peterson's teaching on that topic. Now, the Passion Translation was specifically written, I believe it was written by a singular person, which is a red flag for a Bible translation. It was written by a singular person for a specific theological agenda, that agenda being the new apostolic reformation, which we touched on in the beginning of this stream. And the new apostolic reformation is all about uh, 
hyper-charismatic spiritual gifts, restoring the apostolic age of Christianity, uh, and prophesying and stuff like that. It's very much a hyper-charismatic movement. It's very much a paraphrase. You talked about how it it adds entire sentences to the Bible. Yes, it it would. Yeah, I mean, the addition, and of course it overemphasizes the use of the word passion. Right. Which, at its etymology, means suffering. Yes, I mean, passion of the Christ means, you know, the suffering. I mean, so... Uh, we also want to look at, I have the 20 minute and 45 second mark as the next timestamp to look on for this. And this is, uh, about I thought this was a trip to India, right? Yes. Yeah, so part of his background, I believe his, uh, he, he's from like, he's like a missionary child. So his parents are, are doctors. And I think he doesn't say it in this sermon. He says it in his, his South African sermon that, I, he he's like the only person in his family that isn't a doctor, so. But he's always had a lifelong passion for missions, and in his interview with Elijah Schaefer, he talks about how he's messaging with pastors overseas, and they're of course critiquing the American church for locking down. So this is like he's talking to them about the lockdowns, right? And that was one of the questions that I asked um, when I was interviewing about one of the writers of the Frankfurt Declaration, uh, Stephen Lloyd, I was asking him about what was the perception of America and our response, our pastor's response. So he indicated that, you know, there wasn't much of a difference because, you know, their work focused on their own. And to some degree, he talked about how pastors in France actually had more freedom than many places in the United States. So that was just for comparison because i asked that same i asked about that sentiment to uh stephen lloyd who's a missionary in france so let's play this clip about his trip to india but when i went to india for the first time um i you know and i've i've been now almost 25 times it's a place that's very dear to our heart we've rescued over a thousand children today in india from um, temple prostitution and the sex trade it's a, a place that we're very engaged in but the first time I went there, um, they, uh, I, I had just learned how to play guitar. I was just learning about worship. And I was visiting the villages of northern India where there was a crazy revival happening among the Sikh peoples. And if you don't know what the Sikh peoples are, they're like, you, you'll probably meet one if you get a taxi ride in, in New York City. Like I they like have turbans kid. on. They're, they're really sweet people. But their, their religion is super dark. It's super gnarly. And uh, Amritsar is the, kind of where, this, where the, the temple is. And yet there was a revival happening in North India where they were getting saved. And it was, God was showing up through visions and dreams. And it was a powerful movement. And so we were going to these house churches. And so I show up in India and this pastor picks me up. And he says, uh, we're going to go, we have five church services today and I, you know, bring your guitar and I want you to play and share your story. And I just was like wide eyed, you know, I'd never seen a revival in a place like that. I'd always wanted my whole life to go. So on the way to the first service, which is in someone's backyard, in this story, he gets a call from somebody on his phone and we're on a rickshaw, which is a little bike, taxi bike, you know, in the village. And 
So we're sitting in the back of this, in this basket in the back of a guy that's pedaling us on a bike, which, and he gets a call and it's somebody screaming on the phone, screaming on the phone. I can hear it through him. I'm like, what is happening? That's crazy. And he's like, all right, we have, and he turned to me, he said, okay, we have a little detour on the way to church. It's just going to take a minute. Don't worry about it. I'm like, all right. So we go to this house. I walk into this house and there is a five foot one woman with the reddest eyes I've ever seen screaming like a man, throwing dishes everywhere, fully demonically possessed. Like I'd never seen anything like that. It was like a horror movie. Like, I, I didn't know that this could happen to people. I've never seen this level of demonic. And, and I walked right into the house and you could tell the guy was, knew that I was shocked. And he looked at me and he's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. No problem, five minutes, five minutes, you know. And so this, this lady's in there and she's chucking plates and she's like getting knives out and it's crazy. And he's just all, this pastor I'm with, he's a G, you know. He's just cool and collected. He's like, five minutes, don't worry. He's like, and he takes me and he puts me into the corner of the room, over here in the corner of the room. And he's like, just sit there for a minute, it's five minutes, you know. He walks over, he starts having a conversation with the demon inside of the lady. And this was later translated back to me. And he's telling the demon, why are you in this woman? You're one of the easiest demons to come out. Just come out. And, he, and the demon goes, I'm not gonna come out. I've been inside of her for 15 years and it all leads to this moment today. And so the pastor is talking to the demon inside of the lady and he says, what do you mean meaning this to this moment? He said, I've built an altar in her, and I built an altar behind the house and I'm sacrificing her three children today. And the pastor looks at the demon and starts laughing and he goes, you ain't gonna do nothing. You're gonna come out is what you're gonna do. The demon starts screeching, I'm not gonna come out, I'm not gonna come out. The pastor looks over at me and I'm sitting there, guys. You can imagine. I am like, this is crazy. The pastor looks at me, he smiles at the lady as she's screaming. He looks at me and, and he points. He reaches into his little leather, dusty backpack that he has and he pulls out a tambourine. That got weird. Now, now listen, this ain't no normal tambourine. This ain't, this ain't like your church mama's tambourine. This is a tambourine that has two thirds of the rings missing. This is a bloody sword. It has grooves in it from where his hands hold the wood. Title is worship. He takes is out his weapon. tambourine and he just starts walking around the house, shaking his tambourine, singing his worship song that he wrote in his indigenous language, singing about the power of breakthrough in Jesus. Now, here's the thing he's not even looking at the woman. He like goes into another dimension. The woman's screaming, doing crazy. And he just picks up his tambourine and he's smiling. He's walking around the house singing about Jesus, shaking his tambourine. He's just smiling. He's just smiling. And after about five minutes, I'm watching what he's not watching. This woman starts going through deliverance. You can just see these demons coming out of her one by one by one. And he's just sitting there. He is in another zone with the Lord, singing and worshiping. And then after about five to 10 minutes of this deliverance that's taking place as he's walking around the house, 
he noticed that it gets really quiet and the woman's laying flat on the ground. And he turns over and he looks at me and he looks at her and he goes like that. He walks over to the woman, puts his hand on her and he begins to speak to her. And you can totally tell she's come back to her feminine self. She's speaking in a normal voice. She's crying, she's weeping. And all of a sudden, the husband comes into the room. The husband brings the three kids into the room. We get the family together. He starts praying over the family. He takes his tambourine out. They all start worshiping. This is about a 15-minute ordeal. And then he looks at me and he goes, all right, let's go to church. Let's go. As if he does this every single day of the week. As we're walking out of the door, and by the way, we did see the altar that was built in the That's back. That's not a red flag? That, she, that this demon was gonna sacrifice her kids. I mean, it was crazy. As we're walking out of the door, I'm just sitting here going, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't even know how to explain this. I don't know what's going on. My theology is being rocked. This is wild. And as we walk out of the door, he turns and he looks at me and he goes, Brother Sean, he's like, worship brings the breakthrough. When we worship, the demons flee. This was my theology 101 on the power of breakthrough in worship. And I learned it from an Indian pastor when I was 16 years old. How many believe that worship brings a breakthrough? In yeah. Judges chapter six. So that was an interesting story. I feel like there are some red flags as it relates to that story. But I mean, uh, particularly how that. nonchalant that is that was and how it was presented. I feel like, you know, the guy thought, okay, this guy's a 16 year old rube. Uh, I can totally just make this look, make myself look awesome by being even more casual about it. Okay. So you're, you're already uh, skeptical on, oh, it's just a, uh, let's, uh, impress the new guy kind of thing yeah that's kind of what it sounds like and if he's 16 years old i'm you know i'm not gonna begrudge his lack of experience and if he grew up in the bethel reading environment i'm not gonna begrudge his lack of discernment or i'm not gonna expect him to have a level of discernment so there are already some recipes that this is an easy scam and the nonchalantness is certainly part of that I mean, I don't know if the nonchalantness is uh, more like a stoicism, because I mean, I don't know. It could, it could, it could just be. Again, I mean, when I heard this, I thought, like, wow, uh, kind of just made you drop whatever you were doing, listen to it. And again, I mean, to me, I mean, I thought the, I mean, to me, I kind of was just like, and eh, this is a little bit more believable than like claims of miracle at miracles at Bethel Church. So it's just like, on the, so I was more yes doing it. on one hand was, it's more I was believable grading on than a, the yeah yeah I was grading on a curve. And so I, I don't deny that more supernatural stuff happens in more uh less materialistic countries. I don't deny that but there is an element that does you know as far as storytelling goes that seems like a red flag or in, in writing we call this foreshadow you know in this you know just imagine that the story's not over yet and then you find out at the end that it was a scam that was that would be called foreshadow these little details in the story such as the nonchalantness you know the predictable of five minute give me five minutes and 
um, just knowing the expected outcome and then saying, let's go to church right now. As though he does this every single day. It just, you know, these are little details that indicate a false story. I feel like you hear most about exorcisms probably in the third world, though. Um, But obviously, I mean, a lot of like third world, you know, a lot of a lot of them are more along the Pentecostal scale because they have a lot of like big churches that exist in like Africa and well, and to be honest, you know, I've had Bobby Lopez tell me that he prefers doing missions with uh, assemblies of God rather than the Southern Baptists because the Southern Baptists aren't very good at international missions. His sentiment, not mine necessarily, because I don't have experience in that area. But there is something to say that the Pentecostals are effective at missions, overseas missions. And I think that's highly, you know, highly evident in the history of uh, uh, in uh, Christendom. If you look at the, the rise other of thing he does mention in the story that maybe again kind of might legitimize it to me would just be the mention of uh, you know you already have like a very pagan practice in that territory, and obviously you know if you go seeking the attention of demons, you're likely to find it. And I imagine exactly. I mean, I imagine exorcism isn't going to be, isn't that, I mean, I can't, I mean, I guess it could be arduous, but you know, when you get the impression in the Bible, you have the ones that are easy. And then the ones that the disciples are just like, Hey, Jesus, can you take this one for me? We can't, we can't do it. So I imagine, you know, I mean, Paul can speak and a demon is cast out of a. Right. So uh, I do think that there's another clip that will. Be quite but I'm surprised this, for this that clip hasn't gotten a whole lot of circulation. And I, I also want to share this clip because this clip is older. It's from 2017. So I want to share this clip. And this is his story of an ISIS uh, fighter coming to Christ. Come on. Come on. And isn't God just funny? The same, uh, you know, Grand Mosque where they declared the end time caliphate and they executed their, their, you know, ISIS, their reign of terror in front of that same mosque, which has crumbled just a few days ago, believers held a prayer meeting. (laughs) So good, so good. What a great time to be alive. What an amazing time to be alive. Well, uh, I just want to share this this quick testimony and then we're going to, we're gonna break some stuff, it's gonna be awesome. So the title of this testimony is ISIS Assassin Converts to Jesus. It's a good place to start, right? Day three, why not? So the story is, is this guy, you know, the, the, the Lord is moving with such amazing encounters all across the Middle East right now. I believe this More is Muslims at Bethel Church. We've seen in, in hundreds of it's years. On their YouTube channel. And Jesus himself is appearing as a man in white. In fact, our last few trips there, we didn't even like do altar calls. You know, I was there four times last year. We just say, hey, who's seen a vision of a man in white? People just raise their hands, you know, it's, it's so easy. And so the Lord appeared to this guy named Abraham, great name. 
And he called him out in a refugee tent and he said, you are gonna be my evangelist. You are gonna win millions of Muslims to Jesus, da 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 da, to myself, all this. And then he anointed him. The guy left the camp and he started just going wherever the Lord would send him. Now, so many people were getting saved that ISIS put a hit out on his life. And they actually sent an assassin from Syria to cross over the border to Iraq and to execute this guy. Now, he had heard all these stories and, and, and all of these people started to warn him. All the fear-mongering people came into his life. At his moment, you know, his greatest moment of breakthrough in, in his life, in his young ministry, the fear came. And they said, man, you just gotta chill out, bro. You need to like bring it down a notch. Your family's, you know, everyone knows you're on the hit list now, your family, your kids, your children, like think about them. And so the story goes is that as Abraham's wrestling with this fear, you know, and he, he knows what he's called to do, but yet the threats are coming against him. And, and, and he's, he's actually a carpenter, which is another good thing. <laughs> Abraham the carpenter. And I'm just going to read this, a little bit of this testimony. This is published in Voice of the Martyrs. It's legit. It just came out. It says, one day when he was working outside of his house with an electric saw, as he used it, the blade suddenly popped off and caught him in the mouth. Had the blade hit him a few inches lower, it could have hit an artery in his throat. If it had hit him a few inches higher, it could have blinded him. As he stood in shock for a moment bleeding, he heard the Lord speak to him saying, I am in control of when your life will end. Do not be afraid. So, as he's there a few days later, this ISIS assassin named Fadi comes after him. He shows up dressed in black with a knife, the real deal, coming straight for his, his house. As he's running to his house screaming, Abraham hears it, steps outside, and as this assassin is running towards him, he yells out in a loud voice. He goes, you are driven by the prince of demons and Jesus is gonna set you free. And he starts prophesying. Starts, starts prophesying to this assassin. Now what happens is, is as he's speaking this, while the guy is running at him with a knife. You wanna talk about persecution? It's a little different over there. As the guy's running at him with a knife, he starts to shake uncontrollably as Abraham's declaring this to him. He falls to the ground, the knife falls out of his hand, and Abraham goes over, stands right next to him and says, what have you come here for? What do you want? And then Fadi, the ISIS assassin, looks up at him and goes, I wanna know salvation. Come on! Come on! Come on! So, so on the spot, on the spot, he delivers this guy. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts prophesying. He comes as an assassin and he leaves as an evangelist. And I just feel like today, like this fear thing, God is raising up trumpets all over the earth, singing songs to break fear singing songs and we have so much pressure in our culture so much fear so much anxiety so much so much uh, stuff to conform and to be passive and to dumb it down and i just feel like a lot of you came here for two weeks to get so wild and so courageous and so bold and 
It's not about how many we can gather, but it's about how many we can send next Friday. So, well, oh, stop what, it there. Was that his story, or was that like something he read in so, Voice of the Martyrs? And so, there is a magical thing called the internet, and I looked up this story. I found this story during the time that I was playing this, and let's just kind of do a run-through of what Voice of the Martyrs says, since he cites Voice of the Martyrs. And let me tell you, if that was a book, this is the movie. You know, the, the version he gives was a theatrical adaptation of a book. That is how uh, faithful you could say that it was. So I'm going to pull up um, Voice of the Martyrs Canada is where I found this. And uh, let me make it actually more readable. Uh, is that big enough? Okay, big enough. So Pastor Abraham had been threatened many times for boldly sharing his faith with Sunni Muslims who were crossing the border from Syria. But the threats towards his family were no, becoming increasingly frequent the, uh, and chat. more serious. Uh, they're saying what? And they're saying chat? no. They're saying no feed. No feed. Uh, are you kidding? Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, damn. Yeah, they hit me with copyright. We... We're back up, it looks. Uh, are we back up? Because, okay, yeah. So, was that odd? Because, okay, so we're back up, uh, I guess. So, how much did we miss? Because I will. Uh, I think we missed the transition to the to the article that's that's what i'm seeing okay so and we pretty much finished sean Floyd, and then we transitioned to the article and that's what okay we well that is some big tech censorship there so they basically said as soon as we stop playing the material so i'm not sure uh this will all be posted live so apologies i'm not sure how that happens but that's youtube so what i wanted to talk about was sean foyt gave the movie version of what he said the story that he tells was the movie version and this is the book version is that we're going to um this is the book version and i guess i'll just restart with that pastor abraham had been threatened many times for boldly sharing his faith with Sunni Muslims who are crossing the border from Syria. But the threats towards his family were becoming increasingly frequent and more serious. For several months, he had been dealing with mounting internal fear. He knew of no better way to combat that fear than to pray and ask the Lord for strength. 
One day while working outside his house with an electric saw, the blade suddenly popped off and caught him in the mouth. What? Uh, had the blade hit him a few inches lower, it could have severed his artery in the neck. If it had been a few inches higher, it could have blinded him. As he stood shocked for a moment, he sensed God's spirit impressing upon him, I am in control of when your life will end. Stop being scared. At that moment, Abraham's fears were calmed. In the same area Abraham had begun ministering, an ISIS fighter named Fedi was recruiting Muslims to fight for the terrorist group. When several people at the refugee camp told him about Christian evangelist, Fatid was infuriated. The ISIS terrorists decided to personally kill him. This is a lot different than what uh, Sean Foyt was saying. In the same area that Abraham had been ministering, an ISIS fighter named, oh wait, I just read that. When Fadid appeared, walking towards the Christian's home, Abraham was ready. The Lord had prepared the evangelist for this moment. Spe speak to Fadiz strongly and directly, don't be afraid, he was admonished. So he is claiming divine revelation there that he had heard Fadiz or God speak to him directly about Adid. Uh, or so about he knows Fadid. that he's, he knows this guy's coming for him. As Abraham began to speak the words God put on his heart, Fadid began shaking uncontrollably, I want salvation. The convicted terrorist earnestly pleaded abraham assuredly told him jesus will forgive you of your sins on hearing this fadi began to weep the evangelist prayed with fadi whose life was dramatically transformed after accepting jesus as his savior that day four months ago the former terrorist was baptized at abraham's church where he continues to meet for discipleship the new believer has since led his wife to the lord and now boldly sharing his faith with others at the refugee camp. So um, this is a strange story. And it, you got two different stories about what happened. Like Sean Foyt gives a lot more of a dramatic spin on he, the same story. And it's voice of the white man. He adds the seeing the white, uh, the white pillar or whatever into the story. I mean, the story does contain a guy uh, you know, an evangelist pastor, an effective pastor claiming to have had divine revelation on what Jesus or God told him to say. Now, what, you know, Sean Foyt added it or embellished was that he was going to become an evangelist to many Muslims or whatever. That uh, Sean Foyt clearly embellished. If this is the source, because this is what Sean Foyt cites, he cited this story from Voice of the Martyr and maybe there's a different region of Voice of the Martyr that printed a different version of the story. I find that a little hard to believe, but uh, nonetheless, this story talks about how Fadi went to church, was discipled, and started sharing the gospel. What Sean Foyt said is that he was pretty much anointed an evangelist and started going out and sharing the gospel. Two different pictures. So no, there is I, something to be said about uh, the, the gospel being a command, not a sales pitch. I mean, that's just something I listened to the other day via Jeff Durbin. But he said, you know, if you want to look at how the gospel is preached in the Bible, it's spoken as a command. You are commanded to repent and follow, follow Christ. You're not, you know, 
you know, how many of you are feeling lucky today? It's it's not a sales pitch. It's a command. And that's kind of what you at least see there. So maybe, I mean, it, it sounds like an, a more effective approach because that ISIS martyr, ISIS uh, assassin or would-be assassin is essentially confronting his own worldview. He has to, by physically killing a person. And, you know, just as also pointed out, as Foyt also added the whole ISIS terrorist running at a Christian pastor with a blade in hand to assassinate him. I kind of don't buy that part because, like, wouldn't he have an AK-47 or something stereotypical like that? Or no, actually, in sorry, an, an American weapon because of ISIS is, you know, not, you know, they're a terrorist front, you know, that was created by American operatives. Let's be real about that. Uh, there's a reason why they were extremely well organized and no, don't had get a mediocre right don't, don't yeah, get let's not again. let's not get the stream nuked again but um again the stream would be unnuked on the upload or whatever to youtube because i can easily quash that copyright issue because i'm undefeated on that so because i don't break the rules but um yeah there's a lot of embellishment to this story and i think we've largely covered the uh, issues with Sean Foyt because the issues are pretty standard. Like, first of all, he's a storyteller. And we saw two examples of him telling stories. The first one being the uh, refugee camp, or sorry, not the refugee camp, the demonic exorcism in India. The second one being this isis thing which was a movie adaptation so to speak of a voice of the martyrs rss feed uh story or whatever so a couple key I things mean, he does that. cite uh certain event um i won't say he cites miracles i mean he has certainly i guess retweeted or posted other people saying that there were miracles at his uh let us worship tour Though the big thing he'll cite is a lot of the needles and the drugs just kind of being forfeited by those who attended his events because he would go directly more into the cities where presumably a lot of this, uh, I guess, uh, bad stuff is happening. I guess it's and how do you They actually do at least show the evidence. And maybe the, he knows more about that particular story. Like maybe the knife thing is the weapon that he planned to use to assassinate because... Yeah, you know, he wants to savor the kill like he's the Joker in the Batman series. Oh, if, he, if he's at a camp, then he might have easier access to a knife than an AK. And yeah. obviously stabbing sprees are more common for Muslims, particularly in either the Middle East or Even in Europe. But yeah. a lot of times when you know there's a rampage in Europe, it might actually just be a knife attack. So uh there's a couple things to note. How firsthand is this information that he's getting? Now, that doesn't excuse him making a movie adaptation of the firsthand information that he got, or even if it's not firsthand. He, he definitely embellished that because he was reading on his phone the story, it, is what I think he was doing. And I'm, I imagine what he was reading was the Voice of the Martyrs thing. This was in 2017. So again... One of the metrics that we talked about in the beginning is what is his, a lot's happened in five years. What is his trajectory? And the other, um, 
just looking at the comments here in the chat, you'd be surprised about the access of AKs and uh, camps. But we are, come on, we already touched that rabbit hole with the origin of ISIS. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it'd be M16s or whatever. But um, the uh, so there's the amount of, but also, what is his firsthand experience? Because obviously, when he was 16 years old or however young, he experienced the exorcism in India. Five years ago, and a lot's happened in the last five years, particularly as it relates to Sean Foyt, he was telling stories like that. And that, but however, you know, that story from 16, he was still telling in a similar fashion, style, stylistically, as he told that story about ISIS and stuff like that. So stylistically, I don't know how much he's changed. Doctrinally, I don't know how much he's changed. I don't know if there's any proof that he's actually improved theologically. I think he's mostly known for being able to apply good theology, what good theology he does have. He does know how to apply. But I see him as a man of action, not necessarily a man with proper direction. And I and that direction is Bethel Redding. And I think... Uh, you could argue that he represents the best possibility of Bethel Redding, but it's still Bethel Redding. So I guess I want to focus on one last uh, question, and that is as it relates to his relationship with Bethel Church before we you know, wrap this all up and draw a conclusion. What exactly do you think that the relationship between Sean Foyt and Bethel Church is sort of like Elvis and Tom Parker. And the relationship there was somewhat more of an abusive relationship. Uh, you know, it was basically an abusive manager on the talent relationship that, you know, is also the same story out of Straight Out of Compton in that movie. Do you think that that is somewhat of the relationship between Sean Foyt and Bethel? I mean, because I imagine he grows up more assemblies of God, so that's kind of his his origin. I don't know if I would do that. I mean, it kind of just seems like he rode there. He was in their swim lane for a while, and he's been more or less branched out on his on his own. And that's kind of where I see it. He kind of wrote. Um, he kind of rode along. He kind of rode their bandwagon, so to speak, and has kind of been branched out on his own, kind of like a. Uh, I guess like a private equity firm or like, let's say Elon Musk buying Twitter, you know, you have Twitter, you have Elon Musk, Elon Musk buys out Twitter. And then maybe in five years, he spins it back out onto the, onto the stock market and takes the profits. So Bethel's Elon Musk, uh, Floyd is Twitter and, you know, Floyd has been spun out back onto his own. So, and that's kind of where I see him. And that's where you get somewhat of an upward trajectory with, uh, I guess, him transferring more in, or transforming more into an activist than a, uh, than I guess, well, an activist musician than a, than necessarily a direct product of Bethel. And that, I guess, is what we're going to have to be vigilant and watching for in the next five years. Because, you know, five years ago, he was the worship leader at Bethel Church. 
you know, the one video we've gone to in this stream that wasn't, uh, uh, was it Creative Commons and it's copyright, but nonetheless, um, that was at Bethel Church. That was Bethel copyright. The, but uh, in five years from now, how still attached is he to Bethel's brand? And I don't have a reason to see that he would really become a new brand independent of Bethel. Because I actually see, you know, Christian celebrity culture is extremely corrupting influence. You see that with, uh, I'm going to use Tim Tebow as an example. Because Tim Tebow was heavily known for taking a stand. That is his entire reputation as someone who takes a stand for Christ. And did it on the football field and was a great leader on the football field despite having a pretty injured or otherwise terrible offense. But Tim Tebow in the last few years is pretty much prosperity gospel. It's pretty much Joel Osteen with better, you know, more muscles and less Botox. That's kind of, you know, if you read Tim Tebow's writing, this is very wishy-washy motivational speaker stuff. And I, I, that's not to say that Tim Tebow isn't saved, but there are corrupting influences that true Christians experience and can be caught away with. Now, they don't stay that way. And obviously, he's been caught up in the Bethel camp, which is why I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think we have enough to say that, you know, this guy is definitely not a Christian. I don't think there's enough there. But there are major red flags that we need to raise as disclaimers as it relates to uh, Sean Foyt. There are major red flags. If I were to categorize him, because, again, we have a five-category rating scale of false teachers, he would be a two or a three. <laughs> and he's a two or a three because of his major red flags. Probably more of a three. but. Five years ago, probably would have said he was a four. Because we have to look at the whole fruit of his ministry. Some of his ministry is the numerology. Some of his ministry is the uh, hyper-charismaticism. But other parts is actually recognizing that Christ is head of the church, placing a large emphasis on worship. And... Actually, the last thing we didn't talk about was his music. We didn't actually talk about his music. You did more of a lyrical music. search. I mean, I would say even his music talks about uh, or kind of has a transition because, like, if you look at some of the songs he was writing with Bethel, you have Praises the Highway, which I view as pretty much heresy to say to sing uh, Praises the Highway to the Throne of God and repeat that to the Praises the Highway to the Heart of God and to the Move of God, which is more or less uh, – new apostolic reformation theology that's or heresy that is seeping into the lyrics because under nar these nar apostles believe that worship can draw physical manifestation of of god of god's presence and you know you kind of see this with bethel having the pixie dust in their in their sanctuary and certain occultic practices like that or semi-occultic practices because they're essentially trying to recreate the anointing of either well both the tabernacle and the temple from scripture 
so that's and of course i kind of say that jesus is the only highway to the father and right it's a weird play on modern language and linguistics maybe there's a bible verse taken out of context for that i uh, i mean i don't buy it because i i just view it as that's the nar theology of praise being able to draw a physical manifestation of god yeah um, i mean i i've we, we've both seen like worship music that takes a bible verse uh it get uh, out of context or it's a bible verse devoid of context has no real theological capacity but then the music's defended because this is from the psalms it's like but it's devoid of its context of god other than the fact that you're singing it in a worship song well, it's also stylistically Bethel because Bethel is more repetitious yeah. than its choruses. So that's. And, you know, the idea of that is, you know, to lull you into a trance or whatever is kind of like the theory on that. But I, I, I'm not like, I'm not really an expert on how music affects uh, the brain and how it receives things. But, you know, the whole copyright thing that, you know, we just dealt with was because of the music he was playing in the background while that story was being told. What, because piano? the music, yes, because the piano or whatever, music during a sermon is highly manipulative uh, to conveying an emotional tone or build up or climax. You know, you take the music out. Is there much of a climax to a story? Answer, probably not. Or not in that story, because... You know, he's a very good storyteller. And the way he told that story is like, why are you making the movie Super Spreader instead of making that story into a movie? That sounds like it'd be a good movie. But so he goes from that, like Praise of the Highway to more, I guess I would call it Jesus is your boyfriend music. So he, he does go into that direction. And then I guess his latest thing is uh, Mago Day, which I didn't I didn't really write about because I didn't really, you know, it didn't really catch my attention as far as anything wrong with it. Um, so, but again, I think a lot of his popularity and a lot of his rise is because he, of his political activism. The music is just kind of like, you know, working alongside that. So I guess to conclude, uh, there are a lot of red flags with Sean Foyt. And I think people should be aware of that. And the one thing I if did wanna... it is in your conscious certainly avoid him i would highly recommend doing that if you are at all concerned about these red flags i don't think there are i don't think the trajectory is bad enough to say write him off at this moment and that is where i'll kind of draw my line is like we're not at the moment to completely write him off i think there is still some hope uh that he can be better discipled because you got to account for the fact that he has been extremely poorly discipled or he has been groomed to be the next false te teacher so it's one or the other either he is a genuine believer that's been heavily poorly discipled and we know the poorly discipled part is true or he's groomed he's cut from the same cloth and he will continue their legacy and use this popularity and fame that he's acclaimed to build an entire false uh teaching empire of his own so i think it's one of the, one or the other because one thing i i mean a lot of people with sean Foyt, they'll cite a, the impartation incident uh, involving him going to charles finney's grave and 
with, uh, with his son and like doing an impartation prayer, which is a Bethel practice of grave soaking. Um, but then it's like you, there's a 2015 tweet where he says there's absolutely no substitute for time spent in his presence. No self-help book or impartation prayer, which is used in quotes, can dig you out of that well. Which, I mean, if you're playing politics, that's how you distance yourself from something. So you see that as a, a put down. you see that as a positive sign as a of I would say that is theological I mean, shift towards orthodoxy. If you're doing, if you're playing politics, that's how you create distance from something. So I would say that is a positive sign of shift, but it is 2015. It was Obviously, 2015 when he said that, or when he yeah, did the impartation. That tweet is 2015, and I couldn't find any tweets or anything that had impart or impartation aside from the grave soaking of Charles Finney's grave. Yeah, and Charles Finney is all about the altar calls, and we get a lot of practices in the church today from Charles Finney, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. So anyway, I think we've largely covered the issue that we wanted to cover. I didn't want to do as long of a live stream as we've done in the past. Unfortunately, we had a little incident with YouTube copyright uh, that would delay, that prolonged how long the stream would be going. But otherwise, I do want to close by stay, stating, uh, if you like the kind of content we do at Evangelical Dark Web, uh, you can support us at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. Uh, it's a Patreon-like system, so you get more access to any articles behind the paywall. I've been doing a lot of polls behind the paywall lately, so you can kind of direct the content more in that way. And we also have an exclusive uh, Telegram chat for people that are behind the paywall as well. So that is just something you can do. And uh, otherwise, I, I just want to create some standing content for on Sean Foyt because he is a rising star in evangelicalism. And that just needs to be noted. We need to. And he has a lot of access to politicians. So the, you're exactly. talking DeSantis, Trump, Josh Hawley, Hawley, Bobert. I mean, he's been, he's got exposure to all of them. So he's extremely influential. He's a lot more influential than his, uh, you know, than a lot of megachurch pastors are because of how mobile he is and because of how high profile he is. So we need to be aware of this. Not many discernment ministries have really gone deep into him. A couple have. We're not the first. But I hopefully think that this was probably the most detailed dive into Sean Foyt that I've seen at the moment, or at least on YouTube. So otherwise, uh, have a blessed day, and we will catch you on the next stream.